welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. I'm Jed. And I'm Alistair. And every fortnight, one of us tells the other a story from the rich and varied history of Sydney and her surrounds. Last episode, I shared a story. Alistair, can you tell us what it was about? I can indeed. It was about the nearly 200-year history of the Collets Inn, just on the other side of the Blue Mountains, the first place that you would arrive after descending a treacherous slope on the old road going through the Blue Mountains. And I actually have a little bit of feedback about that episode, if you'd like to hear it, Jed. Only if it's positive. <laughs> well, uh, it's actually it's, it's within the family. One of our most avid listeners, my mum, was... Uh, aghast that I didn't know about the Vale of Cluid, which I'm, I have been assured is pronounced Cluid, uh, <laughs> because it's actually it's exactly where she was born. She's uh, very disappointed and shocked and appalled that now people all over the world will hear of my ignorance of her birthplace, but I apologize. Well, I mean, it might be pronounced the Vale of Cluid in Wales, but in the perennial tr- Australian tradition of uh, coming up with new pronunciations for place names... I think it's safe to say that it may well be the Vale of Clued here. <laughs> yeah, probably is. And I also have a small alteration to make about last week's episode. I noticed upon listening back that I kept referring to Pierce and Mary Collets as Pierce and Mary Collet. And in fact, their last name ends with S. So the Collets Inn is indeed the Collets Inn, but they are also Collets. <laughs> it's, always, it's always tricky with those S's, but I'm glad you've cleared that up. <laughs> And last week, Jed, I uh, threw out a cryptic clue for you, uh, which was about an unsavory event that took place in Darlinghurst in 1889 and has never happened again in the history of New South Wales. You were on the right track at the time. Do you have any further ideas? No, I don't. I don't. Uh, no, one's, no one's helped me out with this, which is very disappointing. Yeah, I was thinking an assassination, but obviously I know it wasn't that. No, no but, um, it's not. Yeah, maybe something to do with the courthouse. There's a big old courthouse in Darlinghurst. Excellent, Jed. It is indeed to do with the courthouse. Uh, good. <laughs> but before I get started, uh, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record our podcast, which in my case is the Nissanun people. And in my case, it's the Rajuri. And the land on which this week's story primarily takes place, which is the Gamigal people of the Cooks River and North Shore of Botany Bay. Sovereignty was never ceded. That doesn't sound like Darlinghurst at all. His clue's worse than mine from last time. Well, as, as, as you said about the courthouse, you know, it is the courthouse that's playing a major role. You don't have to be from Darlinghurst to end up in a courthouse in Darlinghurst. A very good point. Well, I'll, I'll let you crack on. So our story today actually uh, follows the life of a woman called Louisa, who was not born anywhere near Darlinghurst, really. She was born in 1847 to labourers on a pastoral station in the Upper Hunter Valley near a small town called Scone, which you certainly wouldn't want to mispronounce in your teenage years. (laughs) Your friends would never let you forget it. So it wasn't Scone, it was Scone, and in this town of Scone, she, well, near it, she was born. The station was actually called Bell Trees, where she was born. I don't know if you know it, Jed, having spent some time in the Hunter Valley region, but it ran thousands of merino sheep. It's probably been excavated. There might have been some coal underneath that station. Well, that's a good point. There's a lot of coal around there, but actually this station still exists to this day, hmm. and it remains in the same family for nearly 200 years, and it has some of the original buildings still there. It's a very wealthy and prosperous station, and it has a decadent 54-room house, which is maintained in great condition. And have you been there? And do they have weddings? I have not been there. I'm not sure if they have weddings, but you can definitely stay there. Mm. I imagine they probably do. I mean, everyone's in on the wedding industry, but you can... (laughs) 
You can definitely spend the night there if you like and take a tour. Anyhow, sadly, Louisa, the main topic of our conversation today, was not uh, in on this fabulous wealth. And so her laboring parents shipped her off to work as a domestic servant in a nearby town at the age of 14. And her mum managed to set things up so that by the age of 18, Louisa was walking down the aisle to marry a somewhat dull but reliable local butcher by the name of Charles Andrews, who at 32 was almost double her age. About 12 years and six children later, the couple moved to Botany. So there you go. Now we're in Botany. Still not Darlinghurst. <laughs> we'll get to Darlinghurst. Anyway, they're in Botany uh, on what was then the southern outskirts of Sydney, where Louisa had another three kids. And there her husband worked with those same merino sheep, possibly, but in this case in the industrial wool and leather processing plants that were concentrated around Botany by the 1880s. Right. And now I know we're revisiting Botany, and this podcast certainly isn't called Stories from Botany, so please forgive me for that. But in our first episode, we discussed the Sir Joseph Banks Hotel and Pleasure Gardens in Botany. We did, and that really captured my imagination, actually. And um, I'm not entirely sure. I think I've been to Sydney once since we recorded that episode, but it's definitely on the list of things to do. Yeah. But anyhow, we said that in the kind of early 1900s when Jack Johnson was staying there, it was losing some of its sheen. It wasn't really the place to be seen as it had been in the kind of 1840s when it was built. And part of the reason for that probably was this industry that was starting to really blossom in the Botany area by the 1880s. And interestingly, the industry was originally drawn there for much the same reason that it was a great spot for a luxury hotel, which was the reliable clear water from the mill stream in which to wash the wool, and the clean, fresh air and open fields to lay it out to dry, which was far superior to the smoke and dust of Sydney. I can relate. Yeah. Sadly, they, I mean, the industry managed to kind of ruin that pretty quickly, but at the time it was a nice, ideal place outside of, outside of the city. Anyway, I don't believe that Louisa was a patron of the Sir Joseph Banks Hotel, but she certainly liked a drink or three of brandy and beer from the modest pub three doors down the street. And according to her contemporaries, she liked to drink, she liked to have fun, she liked to dance, and I can only imagine that you would have got along pretty well with her, Jed. <laughs> I'm surprised she found time in amongst having 15 children. Yeah, yeah, I think she has about yeah nine or ten children at this point, so... Yeah, she, she liked to have a good time, though. And perhaps it was at this local pub that she met a young man called Michael Collins and offered him accommodation with her family as a lodger, which I must stress at this point wasn't a particularly uncommon way to supplement income. And in fact, her family already housed up to six adult lodgers at times, in addition to all of her children. So it's a pretty full house. Must have had quite the place. Yeah, I don't think they did. I imagine they had quite a small... A little terrace in a line of terraces. I can't imagine it was particularly big. Anyhow, in this case, this lodger that she invited over, there there was some hanky-panky between her and him. And you don't even have to believe me to hear about it, because as you can read in the evening news, it was later claimed that they conspired to meet at the tram stop and got caught, and this is all in caps, KISSING IN THE CARS! <laughs> Which I thought was great, because I had no idea that people used old caps back in the day. But they, still, <laughs> they certainly it's did. It's an old tradition. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, her husband eventually caught on and ended up unceremoniously booting this young lodger, Michael, out of the house. 
But her husband Charles wasn't to be around for much longer because just six weeks later, he suddenly became terribly sick, complaining of severe pain in the stomach, constant vomiting and diarrhea, and five days later, he was dead of what the doctor recorded as acute gastritis. A poisoning is afoot. Poisoning. Poisoning's what you're thinking, Jed. Already. Scandalously, a mere matter of days later, rather than dressing entirely in black and observing a traditional period of mourning, Louisa was instead hosting a party in an empty house in the same row of terraces we've already discussed, where there was food, drink, dancing, and our old friend Michael the Lodger in attendance. It sounds like a wake. I don't think there's anything suspicious there. I don't, I don't actually think that it was related to a... To the death of the husband. I think it was just a house party. Well, maybe she had it booked in already before he got sick. <laughs> I can't reschedule. <laughs> anyway, the next day, Michael moved in with her. Didn't he live there already? I thought he was already living there as a lodger. No, he got kicked out by the husband. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, sorry. That's all right. It's, it gets confusing. Anyway, he's been kicked out. Then then the husband dies. There's an unrelated party. And the lodger's there and he moves back in with her mm-hmm. the next day. And Louise is spending large sums of money from this life insurance payout that this kind of dour but very sensible uh, butcher husband of hers had uh, made sure to take out a policy for. And she cleared all of his gambling debts, which apparently were quite significant, and bought him some fancy clothes and accessories. And they got married a mere couple of months after her original husband died. I feel like that also wasn't completely unusual for the time because... I suspect Sydney in that era was a society where there was sort of some stigma around being an unaccompanied woman or there were certain legal things that were more difficult to do. So, I mean, I can see where this might be heading, but I feel like her remarrying quickly isn't uh, isn't necessarily as scandalous as it might be in this day and age. Yeah, I, I like it, Jed. And you're absolutely right that it's heading towards something because nearly all of this story that I'm telling you now and is coming from court records and newspapers uh, records at the time of the court case. So it's kind of retrospective and casting her in a bit of a suspicious light. Mm. Well, I won't stand for it. She's innocent, I say. Well, excellent. I like, I like that you've already decided that because we've got quite a long way to go, but it's a good, good place to start. And sadly, though, her, there's more. There's more to come in this case. Because her marriage to the second husband, that was not to last either. So seven months after the wedding, she gave birth to a son, actually. Uh, But one night, the baby began screaming and wailing in a way that suggested it was in great pain and was dead before the morning. Who's the baby daddy? It could only have been this new lodger because... Oh, it was just after the death. Yeah, the baby was conceived just after the death of the husband. However, the baby was also conceived before the marriage. There's more scandal there. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm glad you're catching all these details. The body was barely cold. Indeed. Well, that's what he, she was having the party down the road. Ah, party baby. <laughs> anyway, a few weeks later, Louise's new young husband, Michael, began also clutching his guts and moaning in agony. And he spent just over two weeks in agonizing pain, retching and vomiting, while Louisa frantically caught the tram back and forth from Sydney, imploring doctors to help him and caring for him in his sickbed before he too died. Can you guess where this might be going? Yes. So, so I've, it's been a whirlwind in my mind. Um, so my first, well, one of my earlier thoughts was that we were heading towards like a, a serial killing incident and that we were going to be looking at Australia's only execution. Because I actually don't know. Um, I mean, obviously, we did have a lot of executions as a colony, but perhaps this was sort of as a more established society, like a civil execution, I suppose, rather than a military one. However, now I'm thinking this might be something along the lines of Australia's first 
case of industrial negligence. And maybe that lovely clear water has already been poisoned and it's nothing to do with Louisa. She's merely living in an unfortunate spot next to what was a lovely creek, but is now full of arsenic. Excellent. Well, you've got basically all of the different parts of the story. It's it's all of that. And I like that you've already brought into a into our minds the idea that the, there could be some problem with the water sources around them. They definitely had a well in their backyard, which I think backed onto Botany Bay, which probably was quite polluted at this time. There's all kinds of things that could have been going on. Uh, but this this was conceived of and prosecuted as a possible, a possible serial killer case. Mm. Perhaps the medical community wasn't particularly large in those days because when this uh, second husband was ill and the doctors couldn't do anything about it and it was mysterious. He'd been a healthy young man and suddenly he's just come down with this stomach illness. They started talking to each other and the, the doctor who was looking at him mentioned it to a, to a colleague in confidence and that colleague had actually been the one to write the death certificates for her first husband and her baby who died. And at that point, despite previously having written the death certificate saying that the husband first husband died of acute gastritis and the baby died of a weak constitution, suddenly the doctor became convinced that all three cases were cases of poisoning. And in, the doctors together talked to the police and insisted that there was a coronial inquest, uh, not just into the death of this latest husband, but into all three deaths. Hmm. So the the new corpse of Michael, the lodger come second husband, uh, did indeed show an inflamed stomach covered in raw patches and filled with foul-smelling liquid, and the kidneys, liver, and spleen were swollen, and after testing, it was found that there were traces of arsenic in his body. But it was uh, only kind of small quantities that seemed to imply that he'd actually been poisoned slowly over a long period of time. I'm a genius. There was also a small amount of arsenic uh, found in a glass of milk that had been by his bedside. Uh, her husband's coffin was, the first husband's coffin was then dug up and it had been under the ground for a little over a year at this point. And it had split and been full of mud and water for a very long time. So really there was just an indecipherable sludge in this coffin. But they did manage after some testing to find the most incredibly minute trace of arsenic in this sludge. As for the baby son, we don't really need to think about him too much longer, apart to be sorry for his uh, loss, because he, there were no remains of arsenic found in the remains of the baby. And so it was concluded that the baby at least had just died of uh, natural causes, at least as far as we know. Hmm. However, Louisa was charged uh, with murder, and she was a poor woman, as we've uh, kind of touched on. She was in the laboring classes in botany. And so she was given a fairly dodgy uh, pro bono defense lawyer, called Mr. Lusk. That's not the name of the guy in The Simpsons, is it? No, that's Lionel Hutz. Huh. It just sounded a little similar. <laughs> it's exactly what I was thinking of when you said fairly dodgy pro bono lawyer. Anyway, this Mr. Lusk, yeah, he look, he stuck with her and he gave it a shot. He was an interesting character because he, uh, as well as being a, a somewhat dodgy lawyer, who was actually the first lawyer to ever be struck off the rolls in New South Wales. Uh, this was after the case, maybe about a decade later, when he failed to fulfill a contract. So not the most reliable man. He also was interested in writing novels. And he wrote a novel called Eureka, which apparently is about someone using ancient documents to discover a hidden city in Australia settled by Alexander the Great. <laughs> so a wild imagination. <laughs> 
And he also, in his spare time, wrote A History of Australia for Schools, which apparently was a textbook in quite a lot of public schools, kind of at the turn of the century, but was full of quite a few errors. Including references to the lost city of Eureka. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> and uh, sadly... His, his great inventiveness uh, when it came to novels didn't necessarily carry over to thinking outside of the box as a defense lawyer, because it, interestingly, at the time, the jury in these criminal trials could actually participate in the trial to some extent and ask questions of witnesses and bring questions to the floor. And it was a jury member, actually, during one of the trials that that brought up what became one of Louise's best points in defense, which was similar to what you were saying earlier about there being uh, industrial contaminants uh, that could have possibly resulted in this poisoning. So it was a jury member who asked um, a doctor, is it not true that the wool processing industry in which both of these husbands worked, um, works with uh, skins and wool that has been many cases treated with arsenic to kill the bugs and lice and things like that that was in the wool. And at that point, everyone kind of turned around, shocked, looked into it, and someone confirmed, yeah, indeed, they did use arsenic to process that wool. So that became a very important point in her defense that the uh, the defense lawyer himself had never even thought of. How wild. It's, it's a fairly obvious starting point, I would have thought. Yeah, so a little worrying, this uh, defense lawyer. And of course, other than that, uh, Louise is up against uh, completely all-male juries who have to be land-owning, fairly wealthy, white, from Sydney. And the judges, of course, uh, and the lawyers are all white males. So she's, she's not in the best position to start with. Despite this, Jed, well, possibly because of this, she was tried for murder four times. For the same murders? Yes. And this is a bit of a, a law riddle. How could that have happened? How could how could there have been four trials for the same murder? Yeah. I don't think I know enough about legal process. Based on my intimate knowledge of Law and Order Special Victims Unit, I believe that there would be a case of double jeopardy and you couldn't retry. Well, I'm glad you bring that up because that's exactly that's exactly the point. That's why it's a good riddle because you you shouldn't be able to be uh, tried more than once for the same crime. The only time when you can uh, get tried again is when there's a retrial, and in this case, there were retrials three times because the jury failed to reach any verdict, ah. neither guilty nor not guilty. Hung jury. Yeah. So having a hung jury is not particularly common, and also once it's happened, kind of. Even once it happens once, then normally the, the the government, the prosecutors in this criminal case are going to say, well, we need to we need to change something about our case or find some more evidence or something like that to try it again. We can't just keep going at it because obviously it wasn't enough to convince a jury once. If you have it the second time and it still hasn't it still has a hung jury, normally at that point, the tradition is you, you just don't prosecute it again. So it's wildly, wildly out of the ordinary that she was tried four times for the same murder. And there are pretty good reasons why you wouldn't do that, because obviously after the first two trials, this story's getting out there. It's in the newspapers. Everyone's kind of heard about it. The likelihood of having an impartial jury who don't know anything about the case is incredibly low. And also it's kind of deeply unfair to the person being prosecuted uh, since it's already been quite clear that it's not a cut and dry case where, where the jury's happy to just find a guilty verdict. So by the fourth time, if no one could, 36 people couldn't make up their minds, it's kind of a little worrying if the last 12 Dude. decide that you're guilty. Mm. Anyhow, 
we'll get to the a quick recount of of what was going on in these trials of what what the defense was and why it was not clear cut enough for for these uh, men in the jury to find a verdict it certainly looks suspicious and i think that both of our minds jumped to it immediately when these people were mysteriously dying um, that it could have been a case of uh, poisoning and arsenic poisoning some of the things uh, that Louisa had in her defense were firstly a strange fact, which was what they were really obsessing over until they came up with this industrial contaminant argument as well, was the strange fact that the second husband was wearing pants the entire two weeks that he was in bed, which apparently was out of the ordinary. I guess you probably wouldn't want to wear pants if you're in agonizing pain in bed. Awfully uncomfortable. Yeah. And so the argument was that this was very, very strange. And the only one of the reasons that he might have been wearing these pants was that he might have had the, the arsenic poison in his pants and he might have been purposefully poisoning himself. And this was uh, postulated that this could have been because he was a massive gambler who had lost all of the money that the family had gained through the life insurance. And he was it, it, kind of in a bad space mentally. She also had no real obvious motive to uh, take his life because unlike her first husband, this uh, gambling Michael was not insured with life insurance and he left her completely destitute when he died. Had a great time gambling though, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure he did. Additionally, no one ever saw her making a poison mixture and they also were never able to find any record of her having bought the poison anywhere or how she could have procured this poison or any poison, uh, the poison in the premises of the house. And what about the, uh, what, what information do we have that suggests she was guilty? The milk? The suspiciousness of it all, of them all dying, with the first husband being somewhat convenient since she'd already kind of fallen in love with the second man. And the most damning evidence we have, though, was the evidence of her nine-year-old daughter. In fact, the daughter was the main star witness for the prosecution. And what did she have to say? She said that she had seen a box of what was called rough on rats in the pantry of their house and that her mother, after finding her looking at it, had taken it away and she'd never seen it again. Mm. Would you like to hear a little bit more about rough on rats? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Why not? Rough on rats was an American invention, (laughs) but I use the term invention rather loosely here because it was really just a bit of fine sand and some carbon dioxide and barium oxide and arsenic, but mostly arsenic. In fact, it was, I believe, something like 97 or 98% arsenic. (laughs) I'm guessing it wasn't just rough on rats. No, it was rough on a lot of humans too, and it was actually a bit of a pandemic around New South Wales once it was introduced. Uh, It was used, sadly, for a lot of suicides, and also there were strange incidents of people claiming, oh, it's not that bad, and then eating some themselves and and dying almost immediately. (laughs) Anyhow, Rough on Rats came with a great marketing campaign. You mean aside from alliteration? Yeah, it had a, such a striking marketing campaign and box that was very red, very memorable, and in huge capital letters, rough on rats was written there. So this nine-year-old daughter was able to uh, not only identify it, but spell out the words rough on rats. Interestingly, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of the people who were upset about this case and the way that it went, um, not only were incredibly upset about the use of a nine-year-old uh, in in court as a star witness, uh, but also thought that there was some, possibly some police coaching going on with this testimony because she was very convincing and she was saying things exactly like you'd want to hear them in court. Mm. Anyhow, the first two juries 
uh, re- refused to find a verdict. So after failing twice, the prosecutors decided, well, we'll just switch it up a little and we'll actually prosecute for the, the death of the first husband. But that was an even weaker case, as we heard, because there was just some sludge in a coffin with a tiny, tiny trace of arsenic, no other real evidence, and there was no suspicion at the time. Death certificate said that it was just acute gastritis. That one also got a jury that was uh, hung, no decision was reached. And it was at this fourth jury that uh, found Louise guilty. And they'd actually done a very thorough job with this fourth jury of sifting out anyone that they thought might be responsible for uh, refusing to find a guilty verdict. So I think there were four or five jurors who were kicked off that jury as before they start. What's that called? Jury selection? Yeah. So they used the same jury from the pre- like each time and they just made alterations. No, no. They, there was a completely different jury every time. Right. But at the in the first phase, they uh, cut anyone that they thought might not want to convict. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I believe the first first three juries, they might have just chosen the people who turned up as the jury and i guess the jury pool was also very small because mm-hmm. again it's only like wealthy landowning white men in the sydney region and so they probably you already have that uh, going against louisa in a way i don't think that they found it necessary to do further selection down from that already fairly select group but by the fourth time of trying to uh, try this they they did further selection within that group of uh, potential jurors to find the 12 that they thought would find a guilty verdict and they were in luck. Yeah. So before we kind of get to the the final events there, I just thought we'd take a little quick diversion to the actual place where it happened. You said that the Darlinghurst Courthouse is a very impressive building. Mm, certainly is. It is, right there on Taylor Square on Oxford Street, right? And have you walked around the enormous sandstone walls behind it before? Uh, yes. Yeah. So the, the courthouse is that front bit facing onto Oxford Street and Taylor Square. And then behind it, where those large walls are, that was where the old jail was. So they were kind of directly adjacent. And in fact, Louisa would be taken through an underground tunnel into the courthouse uh, when she needed to appear in court. The courthouse still functions as a state court, but the jail is now occupied by the National Art School, which you might have already known. Yes, it is. Indeed. Uh, If you walk down Forbes Street, which is the street on the western side of the jail, on the city side of the jail... Uh, you'll see an imposing set of stone towers, kind of medieval-looking towers, on either side of a gated entrance. And this was the main entry to the jail. Do you, uh, do you by any chance, recall what that looks like? Um, you know why this wall, that wall is most famous, right? I read on Wikipedia that there were uh, male prostitutes on the other side. Yeah, it's, a, it's Sydney's most famous, um, like, pick-up spot. Well, it was pick-up spot through the 20th century. And is that, that, I believe, from what I was reading, is on the, like, the St. Vincent's Hospital side. Is that correct? I'm not sure, but it's, yeah, it's the back side of the, it's the back side of the courthouse and jail. Yeah, well, that, that I'm glad that you bring that up, because that's also uh, part of the history of that wall. I think that that, when did you say that that was kind of latter half of the 20th century? Mm, yeah, probably throughout most of it, to be honest, but definitely not in the age of the internet. Yeah, and maybe not in the age of when it was a jail. I guess it stopped being a jail, I think, in about 1912, somewhere around then. And it's a Macquarie building, I think. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. It's actually not a Macquarie building. It's immediately after Macquarie, like the next year kind of thing. The story of the jail is actually closely tied to 
the history of Macquarie as governor. And it's actually because when the government in England sent out a commissioner to come and have a look at what was going on, he was appalled at the fact that Governor Macquarie had a fairly favorable view of freed convicts and was attempting to make New South Wales a prosperous and even desirable place. Mm and sent a furious report home saying that that wasn't the idea at all. It's meant to be a place of punishment. And so after Macquarie was recalled back to England, the first thing that they said they needed to really get things back on track was a nice, big, imposing jail on the edge of the town, which was now right in the middle of town, but that would have been right on the edge back then. And so they began building in 1822, the year after Macquarie was recalled. Hmm. Yeah, so the gates that I asked you about on the Forbes Street side... It's outside of those gates that the public hangings took place in the era of public executions. You mentioned executions right. a bit earlier. There were there were a lot of executions going on yeah. all through the all through the eighteen hundreds into the nineteen hundreds, and I believe that it was only in the nineteen fifties that nineteen fifty five I think that capital punishment was abolished in New South Wales. Wow, I did not know that. By that point, a lot of the time, although the sentence for murder was being executed, it was by course changed with leniency to a life imprisonment sentence, and then it was only formally abolished in nineteen fifty five. But the last execution in Sydney was Louisa. The last woman to be executed in Sydney was Louisa. Uh. Yeah, and it was a it was a big deal that uh, it was a woman being executed because we probably don't talk about this nearly enough. But most cases of uh, murder and mass shootings and things like that are nearly always perpetrated by men, and this was the case in the 1800s as well. So once a week or so, there was someone being hanged for murder, but there were very very few women. It was about 20 years since a woman had been hanged, I believe, in New South Wales by the 1889 when Louisa was hanged. I did, however, want to talk about one of the most famous or at least well-attended hangings that took place at Darlinghurst Jail. And these public hangings really happened mostly in the 1840s. By the... This is a huge aside, isn't it? <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> All right, off you go. By the, yeah, by the 1850s, public executions, the tide had turned against them and the executions took place in private within the, the jail. They kind of decided it wasn't such an edifying experience to have thousands of people watch people. A nice private execution. Exactly. Intimate. Indeed. But anyway, in the 1840s, a man called John, I don't know if it's Knatchbull or Natchbull. Uh, This Natchbull was the son of a baron, and his brother was a fairly prominent conservative member of parliament back in London. So he was from fairly high-ranking family. And he'd been sent to Australia as a convict for armed robbery. But he'd kind of found a fairly cushy job, I believe, as a convict, as a postmaster on the other side of the Blue Mountains. Mm. And after getting a ticket of leave, he then re-offended. This, in this case, it was forgery, for which the punishment was death. But uh, he was granted leniency and instead sent to Norfolk Island. Uh, there, he took part in not one, but two mutinies. But again, he got out of capital punishment for, by turning in, turning informer on his co-conspirators. And then finally, when back in Sydney, uh, he murdered a widowed shopkeeper with a tomahawk in cold blood and stole all of her money and possessions and was found with her wallet and cash, I believe, the next day. Anyway, he pleaded insanity, which was the, the first time in the history of the British legal system that that defense was uh, used. It was only a year after it had been kind of 
clarified how it could theoretically be used as a defense, uh, but that was unsuccessful. And after that, his uh, lawyers even had a stab at claiming that the sentence wasn't valid because it had been mispronounced. Uh, it was a real technicality, but that also wasn't successful. And so eventually he was sentenced to death. And so these huge crowds, perhaps understandably, were furious that he might find some way of getting out of it, getting out of this execution. And so it was, the, according to a newspaper account, the lower classes carrying black flags marked with death's head, who feared that because of the accused higher station, he would be reprieved. Equal punishment for high and low was their cry. The cornerstone of Australia's egalitarian ethos. Murdering the rich. Everyone should get hanged. Yeah, so so not necessarily the most progressive social movement there, but it was 1844. But an interesting story, and it's kind of interesting to think that that was taking place on Forbes Street uh, outside some gates that still exist right there. And heaven help the people trying to cruise. Yeah, yeah. I... It would have been a nightmare. Anyhow, after Louise is sentenced in this fourth trial after being found guilty by this jury that's selected specially for the job, there was quite a lot of public outcry. Uh, there were actually these really interesting letters sent to the Sydney Morning Herald, both a group in Sydney of about 600 women who signed a petition asking for her to have her sentence changed, and also a group of, I think, uh, nearly the same number in Melbourne who also heard news of this, uh, these cases and sent a petition up to Sydney. There was also an enormous town hall meeting. The town hall had just been opened in that same year in 1889. Mm. It was absolutely packed. There were prominent politicians and they marched all the way to the, yeah, I guess it would be the governor, but the governor was less important by 1889. Okay. Asking for him to help. He wasn't able to provide much help. It came up in the, the parliament of New South Wales where there was an enormous kerfuffle about it. And Henry Parks, who was at that point the premier, refused to act in any way to grant Louisa a reprieve and claimed that it was an abominable act of poisoning her two husbands. There was also growing resistance to capital punishment at the time. And so at least one member of one of the juries, I think possibly the second, it later turned out was just an ardent opponent of capital punishment. And so no matter what, whether he thought the person was guilty or not, he was never going to find them guilty since the sentence was death. There's something great about the jury system. Like... <laughs> Yeah, and I guess that's why probably jury selection is just such an important part of trials uh, these days and why you could, yeah, they could be win won and lost before the case is even started. But the other interesting thing about all of these petitions that were signed, especially by these like quite large groups of women in Sydney, was that this was part of growing resistance on the part of women uh, to being subject to laws and taxes that they played absolutely no role in creating since they had no political power. And some of these women who uh, both organized the petitions and signed them were also the same women who were involved in the establishment of the first suffragette mm. group in Sydney in the next year in 1890. And the uh, women's suffrage movement in Australia was incredibly successful, really, especially in comparison to other countries such as uh, the USA and England, uh, because in for instance, South Australia, women were granted the vote in 1894, which is one of the first places in the world. And I believe by a federal election in 1903 or 1904, uh, all women in Australia uh, had won the right to vote in that federal election. Not all women. That's an important point. Indigenous women obviously were not uh, granted the right to vote and indigenous Australians did not win the right to vote until the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. 
despite the fact that Australia was very very early in uh, granting female suffrage, it took a very long time for a woman to be elected to federal parliament. I think it was in the 1940s. Uh, and then also uh, Indigenous Australians uh, weren't granted the vote for a very long time. And we right now, I think, have a fairly low representation of women in our uh, state and federal assemblies. Uh, I think we we're about 50th in the world or something like that. So, yeah, there's still a lot of work to do. Yes, a long way to go. Yeah, exactly. So being 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 quick off the mark in the late 1800s and early ni- 1900s didn't, didn't necessarily mean that things have been all rosy since then. Uh, so anyway, Jed, that uh, more or less wraps up my story of Louisa. She was uh, sadly executed within the jail in Darlinghurst. Ah, oh, so she didn't have a crowd. She did not have a crowd. She had about, I think, between four or six journalists and a religious figure to kind of take her through her last confession. And that that was it. It was a different kind of execution. It wasn't the public ordeal that it had previously been by 1889. But yeah, she she was the last woman to ever be executed in what what's now the state of New South Wales. And was she posthumously let off the hook? Well, to be perfectly honest, we don't fully know what, what happens. So the the book that I read uh, for this story was called, fittingly, Last Woman Hanged by Caroline Overington. And there's there's nothing in there that can definitively say that she was guilty or innocent. It certainly looks suspicious, the series of deaths, but I don't think that there's uh, any way that that you could say that the evidence was overwhelmingly showing that she definitely murdered them. And well, I guess we'll never fully know. Unless any of our listeners fancy themselves as amateur detectives. Yeah, I would recommend probably starting with this uh, book, uh, The Last Woman Hanged, and perhaps you can uh, take it from there. I'd also like to really thank my brother, in fact, for the suggestion for this episode. Uh, Yeah, Kieran uh, put me onto this book and said it might be an interesting topic. Yeah, definitely. Well, that was really interesting, Alistair. Thanks for sharing. You're welcome, Jed. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I believe at this point in the episode, tradition dictates that I ask you to provide some insight into what we have to look forward to in a fortnight's time. It does. And I I almost got your clue this week, but only at the beginning of the episode. So hopefully you can manage my one. So the story for next episode is a story about people moving to escape rising waters, then moving again to escape racing autos. You've always got good alliterative work in your clues. It's one of my favorite techniques. <laughs> um, rising waters, so it's going to be kind of close to the harbor. My knowledge of geography is pretty limited, as you know, Jed. I I don't have anything to start with. I'm going to have to give this give this a thought. Obviously, you're you're pretty into transportation infrastructure and things like that. So I have to look into what kind of roads have been, big highways have been built at low levels. I got to think about this and get back to you. I have nothing. Excellent. Well, I look forward to hearing what you've come up with in two weeks' time. And I hope that perhaps one of our listeners can help help me out. I think they might. I feel like this is one that there might be someone out there with an idea about. Excellent. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We hope that you enjoyed this week's episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City, as much as we enjoyed making it. If you've got any questions, comments, complaints, or you'd like to know more about anything you heard on our podcast, you can reach us through our Facebook page, Stories from Sydney, or by email, storiesfromsydney at gmail.com. 
And if, like Kieran, you have a suggestion for a story that you think we'll all enjoy, then please email us. Uh, you can contact each of us, each of us individually, or you can contact us through Facebook or our email address. But do please mention who the suggestion is for. Otherwise, we'll both read it and the surprise will be spoiled. And if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support us, the best thing that you can do for us is leave a rating and a review. That really helps us out. Otherwise, subscribe, tell friends about it, and spread the love. See you next time for Jed's story from Sydney. Hey, look at you spicing it up. (laughs) 